Hello, everyone, and thank you so much for allowing me this opportunity for service. My name is Jenny H. I am a marijuana addict from Seattle. Um, I was very inspired this morning at my home group meeting, Happy, Joyous, and Free, by a fellow whose share focused around the theme of who am I, who are we? And so I thought I would share uh, my experience, strength, and hope through that lens and start off by talking about how I ended up coming to MA. And, you know, as, as so many of us do, we look back on our history and our past and we can't ignore those impacts maybe before we actually started using pot, but that definitely were kind of sending us in the direction of needing this self-medication. Um, so I, in reflection, I think back about um, when I was a kid, and I definitely had a sense of self and from what other people perceived me as being too sensitive. And it was a really, um, it was a difficult way of being in my body and in my mind, this constant sense of social anxiety, um, this, this fearfulness, this uh, lack of ease. And Looking back, I'm a teacher of fifth graders, which is 10 and 11 years old. And at that age was when I really started realizing just how desperately I wanted to be outside of myself, how discontented I was um, just being me, how, how flawed I felt, and um, that, that desire to feel differently um, and looking for any means in which to do that. So at that age, you know, it was, um, hiding candy. I had a, <laughs> I was a kid who grew up in the 70s, the time of bran and eating dandelion greens. And I had a, a mom who was always on a diet and there was always restriction and sugar was foreboding. So that became my first, I guess you might refer to it as drug of choice. It was a, it was a, an opportunity to um, feel differently. And, and that's how I felt. Um, I ended up also having that sense of, oh, this is wrong or whatever. So I would hide that. I would, it's just, it's such a, a little kid version of what would happen later. This, you know, I'm going to spend all my allowance, all my paycheck <laughs> on what's going to get me into a different frame of mind. And so that's what I would do. And I would go to 7-Eleven and I would like stock up and then I would hide. I would hide this. And I, when I would quote unquote, you know, use eating, you know, in the way that my, I felt shameful about, um, it's just, it was really reminiscent of, of what later would become the, the discomfort of, of being a user as a teenager. Um, going into my teens, I was just terribly uncomfortable and socially anxious. And when I had my first beer um, with a friend, that sense of like, oh, what, just a, a relief from being meme, a relief from my worry um, and anxiety. And, and soon found that, um, oh, there wasn't just beer at these keg, kegger parties, you know, um, that, that there was this, this uh, drug that, you know, I was a kid before the D.A.R.E. program, so I didn't have uh, education about what kinds of things were being passed around in parties. All I knew is I wanted to be part of something 
greater than myself. And then for me, that was like this societal group of, you know, the stoners. And they looked so cool to me. And I was just such a, a geeky girl that um, this, this desire to be wherever I could be in order to um, score um, was really important to me. So at like age 14, I was sneaking out of my family's house. I was putting myself into dangerous situations, um, which I look back on now, and um, it's frightening, you know, what lengths I went to um, in order to be able to score. Because once I had started smoking, you know, I really had no desire to, like, drink alcohol if I could just be stoned because that would thoroughly take me out of my own headspace. And like I said, there was nothing I wanted more than not to be in my own head. Um, and so that was like the trajectory of who I was. I didn't really get the opportunity to um, find out, you know, who was I. Uh, all I cared about was not wanting to be me. Um, and so that trajectory went on to my choice of universities. You know, how can I live far enough away that my family couldn't just drop in and, oh, this school has this reputation as a party school. And, you know, never did I have an idea of like, well, this is the kind of career I wanted. You know, I just wanted to make my choices around where would I be most likely to be around where I could score and, and who, you know, what kind of GPA bottom end, you know, could I stay in university? And, and those decisions, those little stepping stones of um, choices, seemed to be just again and again taking me down a path of I'm going to curb my life and my life choices around being able to ensure that I stay high all the time. Um, I was a kid um, pre-college uh, that was starting to get an ulcer. I mean, this this internalized stress was no joke. And so finding weed was my form of therapy of self-medication and I through school really really took a stance that no matter what life choices I was going to make um, everything was around the idea of being safe to get high Um, one of the things we say in our fellowship in sobriety is to go to any lengths to gain and maintain sobriety and in a twisted, reverse way, in my addict's life, I would go to any lengths to score. Um, back, you know, this is the 80s. Legalization was just a glimmer in our future hopes. Never really thought it would happen. And I was so disquieted by those time periods where I was so used to being high all the time that when those dry spells would come, this idea of, going to any lengths not only meant like location, like driving to another state, driving to Canada, like wherever that you got like a hint that you might be able to score. Um, But there were also those like going to any lengths in terms of being around dangerous fucking people. Um, People who, you know, in hindsight were having you hang around because they knew that in order to score, you're going to have to like, do things that you wouldn't normally consensually do, but certainly you're making that choice to do it. And it, later in sobriety, it was really hard to reconcile with, with the choices that I made and the situations um, that, I, that I 
went toward. But as a budding adult, um, deciding life choices also uh, around making sure to stay high was um, finding a partner that uh, also I would know would never challenge my addiction. I mean, this person that I chose to be with, it's funny in, in hindsight that my my criteria of knowing that this was a really good person, I would make a really good spouse, was the fact that he was so generous with his weed. And if that wasn't like the highest end of criteria, I didn't know what was. So once again, not really knowing who I was, just really what I was, which was uh, an addict that really didn't have a lot of problems accepting that, not seeing it as like a a flaw, but more like a necessary escape. So here's another fork in the road where I went down into being married to someone who was heavily into their own addiction, um, kind of forfeiting different um, opportunities after university, and really just figuring out how can I stay in this college town accepting like a minimum wage job. I have this degree. I could parlay that. I could go to grad school. But, you know, being an addict, um, that sense of self is, for me was just so hazy. And the only thing I could really see was the importance to stay high as if there was really no belief that being sober was a possibility, let alone like something I would want to do. So I, I go into my young adult years and just partying and uh, accepting less than in all ways um, and never really grappling with what's truly going on. Because, again, it didn't matter. It's just like, you know, I my choices are just to ensure that I stay high because in my mind, that's what had to happen in order for me to feel okay in my own skin. Uh, So fast forward to, you know, how did I get into MA? Um, I'm being someone who was so fucking drug riddled for so long. I didn't have great, um, problem solving skills. So when I'm realizing I'm in a marriage that, is really, really flawed and unhealthy. Not being able to just admit this was a mistake and do honorably and, uh, you know, talk about that and, and negotiate divorce. I, I didn't have those, that level of decision-making. Everything when I was stoned was just so base and basic. And so instead, you know, I had an affair and, Uh, got caught and the awful sense of morality that was like the first time I think I had any heavy sense of uh, I can't I can't do enough weed to mull this over it didn't align with my morality in a way I looked at it and was like was that me like I it was such a strange sense of dissociation how could I be the person that would do that so I was uh, kicked out of my home and and left my college city and at, for lacking of, you know, I had used all my funds for weed. I didn't have such a thing as a savings account. I had no fiscal responsibility. Um, and so I went back to the, my gracious family and ended up being one of those 
people live in their parents' basement and just kind of feeling stuck there, still using, still like doing anything I can to stay connected with friends so that I could try to score. And then I guess a blessing is that I ended up smoking something that was so strong that I started having panic attacks. And they happen cyclically, like every time I smoke. So I, I just figured, well, my brain is broken. Like it is, it is time. I can't do this anymore. I fucked myself up. So I'm going to go ahead and uh, try not to use. And so I did. Uh, I tried. I tried perfectionistically. I tried stopping cigarettes and pot and alcohol and everything. And in my perfectionism, it I couldn't sleep for three days. I went into a psychotic state. And, and by the time I, I, I relinquished that I am going to go into a treatment center, it was too late because I was suicidal and no one would take me like that. So one of the things I want to share is I, the sense of I was never um, a real religious person, even though my dad was a priest. I had my own issues. So in my mind, I, I was, I have to get out of this pain. I have to, like, I just really thought suicide was the only way out. Um, back in that day, AOL, <laughs> that, that uh, kind of thing, that's how my brain was going, like slow speed, old school internet. I was planning how to kill myself. I was in regret of what this would do to my family, but the pain I was in, not being able to use, being in, in withdrawals that I didn't even understand, I was planning how to do it. My brain was slow and muddled, and all of a sudden, and I equate this to like high-speed Internet, I had a phrase, and it was, you are not alone. You are not alone. And I could hold on to that. I, I held on to the fact that there was hope in there somehow, and it couldn't have come from my brain or my sense of being. It was shocked me enough that I was able to think, okay, well, maybe there's, a, there's tomorrow. I can wait till tomorrow. I looked into treatment then in terms of what do I have to do? What hoop do I have to I'm willing. I may not feel like I'm able, but I'm willing. So I um, found out I was just going to go fast skip forward. The, I was diagnosed bipolar. I was put on medication. And once I was balanced, I was able to start in 12-step uh, recovery. Um, Marijuana Anonymous was unlike anything I had found before. I, I didn't know about it. I had only heard of AA. But through my treatment program, I luckily found out that there's a very unique group of uh, support that can make all the difference if it speaks to you personally. So in terms of uh, recovery and the, the experience, strength and hope, my experience then in MA became one that I think we hear all the time, but it is really a cornerstone. Service, service, and service, making a commitment to do something, making a commitment to make coffee, make a commitment to being there early, to being the chip person, to volunteering, to be a GSR. And it is through those sense of those small steps of being able to see who am I, well, I'm a person who can, I, I still felt like shit. Like I, I felt like a, a horrible, not worthy person, but the program enables me 
to realize, like, I don't have to get to the point of grappling with amends. I can start with step one. And I don't have to progress at any particular speed. I just have to start. And with the support of community, there is this sense of rebuilding. So in that theme of who am I, I started to develop a sense that I didn't have to look backwards in just crushing regret. Because the program enables a forward-looking stance. You don't know necessarily what the next day will be, but you know that in this 24 hours, you are not alone. You're not alone in the program. You're not alone in the sense of being something greater than you. And that trajectory, putting together one meeting at a time, becoming someone who's willing to be a sober friend for someone even if you feel like you can't be a sponsor. Maybe not. I felt like I wasn't worthy to be a sponsor for a long time. But it was that sense of I can be someone different because the program gives me that opportunity. Later on in the steps, it gave me an opportunity to realize I will not be broken if I acknowledge and work on making amends that there is freedom from sharing the most ugly parts of your underbelly, your history, your psyche to another person in sobriety. There is, there is power in the ability to let go, to let your higher power be within, and to be able to have a mindset that recognizes that you can be of difference. So in terms of the theme again of who am I? MA helps me develop into an entirely different person that now can look back with tenderness and compassion to the wounded person that I was and the decisions that I made. This program helped me to be forward-facing and to look at things that, okay, well, I fucked up my first degree. Let's work on another. That's, let's invest in what is heart-filling. And no matter what, keeping the program in mind, keeping yourself realizing that you could be of benefit to any person in a meeting. You don't feel like showing up from yourself service just to show. Maybe something you share helps someone else. There is a great sense of gratitude to know that it's a cycle, that you aren't ever done. In like you, you ripe, you rot, right? So this idea that you can continue to fuck up, <laughs> but you're more likely and more and more likely to recognize it, to clean it, to do what you need to for repair, to forgive yourself, to look at, okay, well, this is another opportunity for growth. That fixed mindset that just couldn't even picture a different way of living or the perfectionism that told me like, well, I fucked this up. There's no going forward. That's just not true. And our program and every time you're going and hearing those steps or hearing how it works, it helped me incredibly. And I'm really appreciative to now say that 
the cornerstones of this program and one day stitched together after another and stumbling forward, um, I'm so pleased that if I am willing and with the support of my higher power and my sober community that next week I will have 26 years. I couldn't have foretold that happening and there's no way at the beginning of recovery that I could imagine. But the longer you spend in these rooms, on the phone, in Zoom, the more you're a part of community, the more relief there is that there is a net of people, your safety net that you can rely on, support you, and to give you the grace and the full heart that comes from supporting others. So this program, in a way, doesn't just help me think, well, who am I? And that I'm a better person in this world because of the program. But this program helps me see who I could be. And that there's never so far in your sobriety that you couldn't be more, doing more, open more. This program teaches me that there's so much more I could be. And with support, very likely be but for dead day I am hopeful that just being present just being here just having the opportunity to know that I'm being heard I'm a better person today than I was yesterday and with that I'll close with just a great appreciation um, for this opportunity and that's it for me